Good morning, Crossroads. I am John Gross. I'm a pastoral resident here. I usually identify myself as like the discount Matt Manning, and I have been told that I need to go ahead and retire that joke. But don't worry, I have a joke that is far more insufferable for all of you today. Okay, see, today is Labor Day weekend, and I hope that, you know, with no work on Monday, hopefully on the horizon, and a little bit, but not a crazy excessive amount of summer heat, you've had a wonderful time. Yesterday, my family celebrated my sister-in-law's birthday, and I was thrilled to learn that she was born on a Monday, because that means she was born on Labor Day. And I know my mother-in-law absolutely loved that joke, but it's been a joke that I have returned to again and again recently because a couple of friends of mine are right on the verge of entering parenthood. Actually, uh, this couple that has been very dear to me and my wife for a long time, they just had a baby on Friday. I, Obviously, I was hoping for Monday, you know, because Labor Day, but it's still within Labor Day weekend, you know, it'll, sometimes that birthday will fall on Labor Day, like we'll have that joke. And then another friend of mine has a baby coming about a, a week and a half. And of course, I've already cracked the joke multiple times, like, well, what if it comes on the 4th, you know, because Labor Day. So anyway, one of the fun things about walking alongside friends who are about to start the journey of parenthood is seeing a lot of the personal transformations and growth that happens. Like these uh, friends of mine, they're about to become dads. There's a lot of self-evaluation that goes on when you're about to become a dad or about to become a mom. You know, for, for my friends, there's this question of like, am I going to be able to provide for my family the way that I'm supposed to? Will I spend time with my children while also holding down all of those other responsibilities at the same time? And then I'm really blessed to have men in my life who are friends who would ask themselves questions like, will my character shape my children into the kinds of people that they need to be to positively serve the next generation of humankind? And will I have a love for Jesus that is strong and passionate and contagious to the extent that these kids will never grow up without knowing the love that God has for them in Jesus. And whenever we have a big sort of life transition like that, that's something we tend to do all the time. We think, well, my entire life has led to, you know, new job, new stage in schooling, new parenting, maybe becoming a grandparent, whatever it is. My whole life story has led up to the moment of this kind of transformation. And now we're going to see, well, what's the next part of the story? What has the story been up to this point? How do I tell that story? And now how do I tell that story with the new things on the horizon in front of me? That kind of thinking, that sort of self-conscious evaluation of your life's narrative, that's something that we're going to be thinking about a little bit this morning as we continue in our series, Working Through the Book of Acts. So we are in season three of Working Through the Book of Acts, and throughout the passages that we've looked at in this series, we have seen the story of the church becoming the unstoppable kingdom of God. And sometimes the church, it's not just despite opposition, but because of opposition, that the church remains unstoppable. Now, the movement of the church, the movement of the kingdom of God may be unstoppable, but our romp through the book of Acts is not. And so our preaching team has been tossing around a bunch of ideas for sermon series in 2024, and it's looking like renewing Acts for a fourth season is probably not going to make the list. So I have a weird task today. 
a task that tends to fall upon the non-senior pastor. See, when I was growing up, when I was in high school, well, I, I remember like my, uh, my high school youth pastor, he had to preach at big church and he got stuck with the sermon on free will. Like, I mean, of course the senior pastor didn't want to handle that. So he just like passed it on to the youth guy, all right? And so today as the non-senior pastor, I get the holy privilege of preaching the weird sermon. See, last week, Matt preached on Acts chapter 18. Next week, Matt's planning to preach on the end of Acts chapter 28. And so I, not 20 verse 8, like the 28th chapter. So now I'm like, okay, so I guess we have to get through the high points of Acts chapters 19 through the beginning of chapter 28. Uh, okay, so anyway, and, and look, there, there's a warning, by the way, in this huge stretch of the book of Acts. It's one of the funniest and weirdest stories in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 20, what happens is Paul's in Troas. He's in the middle of this week-long stay there. And he is, of course, talking to his people. And it's his last night, so he's talking and talking and talking. And I mean, like, you know, most, like, uh, almost like a third of the New Testament is written by Paul. So, I mean, like, you know, he talks a lot. And so he's talking and talking and talking till well after midnight. Anyway, there's this guy there named Eutychus. He's sitting by a third floor window. And Paul is talking for so long that Eutychus falls asleep, falls out of the window, and dies. And then what happens is Paul has to run down and he miraculously resurrects the guy and then moves on. Now here's the thing. If I were to work through Acts 19 through about 28 with anywhere near the level of detail that we've had throughout the series, we would be here until well after midnight. I know some of you would probably fall asleep. You'd fall out of your chairs. Thankfully, there are no second floor windows in the room. But the thing is, I just don't think I have the miraculous gifts of healing to deal with the consequences. So what we're going to do, I'm just going to hit the gas. You need to buckle your seatbelts. We're just going to blaze through like most of the rest of Acts today, okay? So I've got a slide that encapsulates pretty much, I don't know, like eight or nine. I lose count of the chapters, but all the chapters of Acts that we're going to be looking at today. And here's what we have. I know it's a lot of words, but I want you to notice that in this blob of words describing different moments in Acts 20 through 28, we have this phrase come up again. Paul explains himself to. Paul explains himself to. Paul, expl pa Paul explains himself. Paul explains himself. So what we have in these chapters is just Paul explains himself in front of a lot of different people. And what Paul does is he explains himself to one audience after another is he's doing this thing that we all tend to do when we are at major transition points in our lives. He is trying to make sense of his own story. He's trying to tell, what is it that I have been doing? What is my life really about? What is going to be going on in my life? And he's doing that very self-consciously because he thinks the story of my life is probably coming to a conclusion pretty soon. Now, why does Paul think that? Well, it's because in Acts chapter 19, he feels compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And a lot of his motivation for that is something that we learn about in Paul's letters. He's been taking up a collection to support the church in Jerusalem. He's been taking up some money from some of his churches that he's planted along the way in his journeys. And his goal is to go down to Jerusalem and to serve that church. And one of the things that we've noticed throughout this series in the book of Acts is that whenever Paul has a run-in with the Jewish elite, things tend not to go well for him. People stir up riots. They get really mad. They assure everyone that Paul is an enemy of the law of Moses, an enemy of God as they have known them, and he's trying to subvert the story of God in all these different ways. And so for Paul 
to go to the epicenter of Jerusalem. That's a really scary thing. And so what happens is before that journey, he's standing in front of the elders of the church in Ephesus, and he's giving them a speech. And the form of this speech is basically a farewell speech. It's a place where Paul is trying to self-consciously make sense of his own life narrative. So if you've got Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24. This is a spot that we're going to spend a little extra time in this morning, but I mean, we're going to be flipping through the book of Acts quite a bit. But anyway, let's take a look at Acts 20, 22 through 24. And now behold, this is Paul talking to the elders at the church in Ephesus. I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So just quick show of hands, who thinks that Paul is expecting to leave Jerusalem alive? Okay, so none of y'all are overachievers reading ahead. I love this. Okay, so here's what happens. Paul is like, this is the end of it. I'm, I'm saying goodbye, and especially with a journey towards Jerusalem, that's something in this big picture of Luke and Acts as sort of like a, a two-part super story. There's, there's a certain logic to Paul's feeling that, you know, the fateful music is playing in the background or something. See, in the Gospel of Luke, just like the book of Acts, we have a geographically based organization. So the book of Acts starts in Jerusalem, moves outward. The book of Luke had actually started away from Jerusalem and moved towards it. In Luke 9.51, there's this moment where Jesus kind of acknowledges his fate. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Everything in the gospel of Luke from that verse all the way to the very end is part of the journey toward Jerusalem that Jesus takes. And then eventually his time in Jerusalem where he is killed and then raised from the dead. And so Paul is thinking, all right, I'm heading to Jerusalem. There have been certain parallels between my life and the life of the Savior whom I proclaim. And so I'm thinking my life is going to sort of rhyme with the life of Jesus. When I go to Jerusalem, it's like the bum, bum, bum kind of moment. Like, I, that's it. I'm done for. And so what he says, he says to the elders of this church in Ephesus, let's see verse 20, 25. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. And then Luke, the literary artist, I think wants us to be in the same space that Paul is in when we're reading this chapter. Just a few verses later, Luke go ahead, goes ahead and underscores that very same point. So this is a gathering with like the elders of this church in Ephesus and Paul. And it says, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So Paul is thinking, it is time for me to go to Jerusalem to die. And as a result, he is trying to make sense of his own life story. And that's a thing that he keeps doing throughout these chapters. And, you know, this self-conscious attempt to make sense of our life story is something that I think every person really does. Uh, I remember before my mom passed away, she did this a lot. 
In the last 10 or so years of her life, she uh, was a little bit like Alexander Hamilton, right, right, like you're running out of time. I mean, she wrote like these journal things for me and my sister to read. She wrote kids stories. She wrote a lot of poetry. She would paint things. She would create music. I mean, she really poured herself into being a creative artisan. And a lot of that was because for her, she knew as her health problems got a little more and more complicated, she's like, I want to leave my kids and my grandkids and my posterity with something. I want them to know who I was. I, I wish that I knew more about my parents and grandparents, and so I'm going to make sure my descendants have that privilege I never had. And I want them to know how passionately I care about Jesus, and I want them to know this Jesus whom I love. And so she really poured herself out into writing and preserving a legacy for herself. And that's something that Paul is going to be doing throughout these chapters. So, Acts chapter 21, Paul gets to Jerusalem and he has a great reunion with the church in Jerusalem. The apostle James is there. Everyone's, you know, it's a happy family reunion. Everyone's well receiving him. And of course, the Jewish elite who are not really receptive to Paul's message, they are also there. And so Paul is like, okay, I have testified to Jesus throughout my life. This has been my life story. This has been my life's meaning. I hold my life with holy open hands. I have made my fateful voyage to Jerusalem. My enemies are right around the corner and nothing can stop them except the might of the Roman military. See, here's what happens. When Paul gets there, people are so mad that they form a mob. Now, let me help you think about what a mob would mean in that time and place in society, especially to a guy who's like the commander of all the centurions and all the soldiers stationed in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital city of an occupied territory. It's around, I think, the year 5860, somewhere like that. In 164 BC, the Maccabees had staged a revolt and freed Judea from Greek rule and they were really good about hanging on to that independence for a time until the Romans came in around 60-something BC. So there's like 200 years or so uh, since this event where Jewish people managed to free their ways from their occupiers. And there was also a sect of Jerusalem, sometimes called the Sicarii or the Zealots. Their whole deal was, we think God is calling us to respond to the Romans by murdering them and freeing our state. And so... When there's a mob in the capital city of your spicy, feisty, occupied territory, you're thinking, uh-uh, nope. No, 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 no. I got, I got to run in there. I got to deal with this. And so what happens is this guy, Lysias, he's a Roman commander. The Greek word for his title is Kiliarchos, which means ruler of a thousand. So pretty important guy. He goes in there and he's like, what is this about? And of course, they're in a mob. They're not giving him clear answers. And so he's carrying off Paul to the barracks. And Paul is like, <clears throat> can I say something? Which he says in flawless Greek. And the guy's like, oh, you, you, can, you can, we can talk to each other? Sure, sure, you can say something. So Paul gets in front of the crowd, Acts 22. He's giving a speech, of course. And you know what? And of course, he switches to Aramaic. I mean, he's flexing like all his different languages here. And so the Jewish crowd is now listening to him. And they're like, okay. And he talks about, you know, how he used to be a persecutor of the Christian movement. And then God appealed to him and changed his mind. And the scales fell from his eyes. And he started becoming an evangelist of the Jesus he believed to be the Messiah. And then he was told to take the message 
message to the Gentiles. And at that point, that's when the Jewish elite and the crowd and the mob, they're, not, -uh. they're like, no, 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 no. We, we got to get after this guy. And so then what happens is the soldier's like, uh-uh, no, we do not like mob violence here. Why don't you let us interrogate him? And so, of course, they bring out, you know, like the, the whips and everything. And, uh, and then Paul is like, hey, so would you do that to a Roman citizen? Turns out, despite having explained himself to different audiences and started his whole life story from the very beginning, he left out a really important detail to the people who were keeping him from getting killed. He left out the detail that he was a Roman citizen. So Lysias, the commander, was like, no Roman citizen is going to be offed by a mob. I have no idea what that accent was. I think it was Patrick Stewart meets Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. But anyway, so the Roman commander's like, no, I'm not letting a Roman citizen get murdered by a mob without a trial. That is just not how we do things. Things. And so what happens is he's like, we need to get this guy a trial. And so he appeals to the Jewish authority, the Sanhedrin, and this is Acts chapter 23. And so Paul gets in front of the Sanhedrin and he's like, and the Sanhedrin are like, go die. They don't want to hear any of it. And then what happens is Lysias, the commander, hears through Paul's nephew that there's a plot to kill Paul. And so the commander's like, no fly by night conspiracy is going to destroy a Roman citizen if I have anything to say about it. So he extradites Paul and takes him off to this place called Caesarea Maritima, which looks kind of like this. This, by the way, is a picture of Herod the Great's vacation home. That little rectangle of water over by the Mediterranean, that is his seaside pool. Uh, you can see how glorious the floor might have been before 2,000 years of decay would have happened to this place. So anyway, Paul gets extradited over here, and the place he is held in looks kind of like this. He is held in a jail cell. This is a recent excavation. I mean, I think it'd be cool to say like, hey, I've got a picture of Paul's original jail cell. I mean, probably wasn't it. But anyway, um, that's a place where Paul is being held. Maybe he doesn't get to take in all the seaside views, but here's the thing. He made it out of Jerusalem alive, and he got out of Jerusalem because of the self-interest of a Roman commander who didn't want to find out that he allowed the spicy mob from a spicy occupied territory to kill a Roman citizen he was sworn to protect. And so what's happened so far is Paul's story has had some twists and turns in it that Paul hasn't accounted for. So then what happens is now that Paul has been extradited, he now stands trial. He explains himself in front of another person. This time it is Felix, governor of Judea. So he would have been the person charged by the Roman authorities with enforcing Roman political rule in the region. And so Paul has a hearing with him. And, and what Felix does is, is he hears Paul out and he's like, you know what, Paul, you don't sound like such a bad guy. Here's what I'm going to do. Don't leave town. Okay, don't do that. But just, just stay here. You can talk to your friends. Uh, you can move about freely within, you know, here in Caesarea. Just, uh, just, just, just don't leave town, okay? You're, you're still alive. D do you hear me? Your friends with money are going to be very thankful about how alive you are and kept, you know, hitting that beat every two years. And so what happens is Felix, like, he could have scheduled another trial in Jerusalem, but he procrastinated on it. Why? Because he thought that Paul could maybe negotiate a little something-something under the table with his rich friends and Felix would win a bribe. So for two years, Paul continues encouraging the people who are able to visit Caesarea, kind of like the northern coast of Israel, 
and he is still alive. He's still going about his journey, all because of the self-interest of a Roman governor who's kind of being like a Kevin Spacey, House of Cards type of character, and just after power and more power and maybe a little bit of money to go along with it. So then after a couple years, Festus replaces Felix, and in the 830 service, I got those two folks mixed up. I mean, they're both Roman governors, and names start with F. Anyway, uh, so Festus is now in charge, and here's the thing. When you are the Roman governor of a feisty occupied territory, it's really in your best interest to make sure that the people you are occupying actually like you. And so, one of the things he's like, oh, here's an easy win. If uh, I put this Paul guy on trial and let them murder him, uh, I think they're going to be happy with me. Yeah, that sounds like a good deal. So, Paul then has to explain himself in front of Festus. And so, Paul has been kind of feeling the direction of the wind. He's like, okay... All right, I think I know what things are going. They really don't want to kill a Roman citizen. So if I just play the Roman card, things are going to go really, really great for, great for me. So he's like, I appeal to Caesar for my trial. And so Festus is like, oh, come on, the paperwork, dude, really? Okay. So anyway, King Agrippa II and his wife Bernice, they're the, I think, grandkid and uh, grandkid-in-law of uh, Herod the Great who had built that vacation home. They come and they're like, we need to be by our Caesar vacation home. This is going to be great. They're basically probably like the ancient Judean Kardashians, more or less, you know, or like a British royal family. And so they, they roll up. And so what happens is Festus is like, um, hey, so we've got this Paul guy in imprisonment. What do you want to do with him? And so Paul gets a chance once again to explain himself to Festus and Agrippa. And it's this really interesting story when Paul explains himself and he gives his whole life story again. And then he, he's like, you know, he talks about, he passionately proclaims Jesus. And Agrippa is like, are, do, are you trying to make me a Christian? And Paul's like, you know what? I would like everyone to be as I am, except not in chains. So yes, please. And so anyway, what happens is after this speech, what happens is Festus and Agrippa, they get together and they're like, okay, it doesn't sound like he actually broke any laws. He just ticked off the Jewish religious elite, but that's not actually illegal. And so they converse with each other. And this is the conclusion that they come to at the end of Acts chapter 26. When they had withdrawn, Festus and Agrippa, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. At this point, you cue the Curb Your Enthusiasm theme song, right? Because he was like foisted by his own behavior. Anyway, so Paul has had a really interesting journey up to this point. Let's go ahead and recap that really quick. So first, he was like, okay, I need to tell my life, I need to give my final speech to my brethren, I am dying. And then he goes off to Jerusalem, and it turns out, well, God sent a mob. God sent a self-interested Roman commander to help protect him. And then what happened is when Paul was extradited, God sent a self-interested Roman governor and then another self-interested Roman governor and then a uh, less salty descendant of Herod after Paul, all of whom are like, hey, this guy's okay. And Paul, trying to sort of like play in line with the story, then does the one thing that actually keeps him bounded, which is appealing to Caesar. So let's take another look at Acts 20, verses 22 through 24. 
because this is where Paul is like making his best effort to predict the journey that I just described to all of you. He's saying, now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. He absolutely got that right, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. He also got that part right, but I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And he actually did get a lot of those opportunities. So on the one hand, at one level, Paul knew exactly what was going on. He did the, he modeled this absolutely beautiful thing for us, this pattern of trusting and full abandon and in total submission to the Holy Spirit. He's like, God, I give my story to you. And yet at the same time, despite the beauty and the piety of all of that submission to God's will, he was completely in the dark about the details of his story. And when he made his attempts to actually play into it by playing that, you know, that, that Roman citizen card an extra time, that ended up the thing that kept him in chains a little bit longer. And so what's happened is on the one hand, he has been working so hard. He's in front of so many people, told these stories time and again, trying to explain his life story. He has been self-consciously working out the nature of his own personal narrative. And yet the page in front of him, the page of his story that he is living is not one that he actually understands. And I think that's something that happens to all of us when we try to make sense of our life stories. Like, I think back to my mom and the way before she passed away, she was like, I really need to write, I really need to paint, I really need to make all of these creative artifacts, I need to put all of my heart and soul and effort into producing something. But I don't think she really realized that the best thing she ever made was time with her family and the people who loved her. And I know she treasured all of that creative output, but we loved her not for what she made, but for who she was. And I hope she, I hope she knew that one of the greatest gifts she ever gave to me and to my family was a sense of enchantment and vitality and humor. I hope she knows how empowering it was for all of her strange quirkiness for me and my sister because she modeled for us this beautiful way of unapologetically being yourself without reserve. I hope she knows that her devotion to Jesus was so strong that for me to be in front of a crowd preaching, I mean, it was kind of an inevitability. I, I hope she knows that even though she's passed on, her story isn't finished because God isn't finished writing it. And I hope all of you now who have come in this beautiful Labor Day weekend Sunday morning with your own stories, I hope all of you know that wherever you are and wherever you might feel stuck, God is not done with your story. Your story is not finished until God is finished writing it. As we get into the last couple chapters of the book of Acts, Paul is starting to figure this out. He's starting to see where the winds are carrying him. And in Acts 27, we see where the winds are carrying him very literally. So I've got a map right here. This is, this is from a Bible atlas. The words are way too small, sorry. Um, but you can see this is the movement of Paul's journey to Rome. See, Paul had appealed to Festus, I want a trial in front of Caesar. And Festus is like, 
okay, we can, that was a bad move, bro, but we can expedite you, okay. And so what happens is Paul gets on a ship and he's on a ship with a lot of uh, soldiers and a lot of prisoners. I think the total complement is about 264 people. And so he gets on this ship, he uh, starts out at Caesarea, that's over this green area, that's uh, where the modern day country of Israel is. And what happens along like this portion of the map between Israel and modern day Turkey, the ship is just going way too slow. And so what's happening is people are like, uh, we're going to be stuck in some really unfriendly places during the winter. So they change to another ship that has more supplies on it. And then what happens is going along this way, well, there's a big storm that pushes them way off course. And they're like, we have no idea where we are. And then by the time they get just south of Sicily, that's that orange island there, just south of that, you have this place called Malta. And when they get to Malta, they have a shipwreck. And at this point in the story, Paul having kind of learn the lesson that even though it is his story, he is not the main character of his story. He started to figure out that God is doing something here and God is doing something a little different here. And so what he's doing is he's saying, look, I've heard from the Lord that yes, our cargo, our supplies, our boat, our ship, it is lost. It is done with, but God will not let harm fall to a single hair on any of your heads. All of you are going to survive. And so what happens is sort of knowing that God is the one authoring the story, he gives his entire crew, and I mean, not really his crew, he's a prisoner in the brig, I guess, but he steps up as a leader and starts encouraging these people, hey, you're going to survive the shipwreck, and everyone survives the shipwreck. And Paul is able to step up and, and get everyone through this crisis situation safely because he recognizes a promise that Jesus had given all the way in the beginning of the book of Acts. So let's see Acts chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. This is Jesus talking to the disciples right before he ascends to heaven. He says to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Sumeria and to the ends of the earth. See, Paul knew that God was the one appointing the times and seasons for his life. Paul knew that God was the one who had sent the mob, who had sent the self-interested Roman people of power. God was the one who sent the slow ship. God sent the storm. God sent the shipwreck. And as a result, the gospel actually got, in a sense, to the ends of the earth. See, the people in Malta, the, the Greek describes them as barbaroys. Some translations might render it uh, natives or island folks or something like that. But this word barbaroy was a word that you would use to refer to the frontier people, the ones who are off in the distance that you haven't met and they kind of have strange ways of their lives. And so what happened is like Paul has met this group that most people don't even talk to. And there's a whole weird thing with a snake bite that I can't really get into, but they end up really receptive to the gospel. And so what happens is because of this shipwreck, the gospel gets to that version of the ends of the earth. And then what happens is thanks to the hospitality of, of the people who are there. And then this rich Roman guy who, you know, helps everyone get together. Paul eventually makes a voyage to Rome where for a time while under house arrest, Paul is able to continue preaching the gospel at the epicenter of the known world. In a sense, Paul has actually made it to the ends of the earth. The God who appointed the times and seasons for the movement of the church had actually made good on his promise to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. Paul thought his story was over when he was giving that farewell speech in Acts 20. But his story was not over because God was not finished writing it. 
And because Paul was not the main character in his story, his story was able to take twists and turns that Paul could never have predicted and that Paul could never have controlled. And it's the same with every single one of us. We all live lives where we are trying to make sense of the stories that we are in. And we all tell ourselves these narratives, like everything is going to go up to this point that I'm at right now, and then it's just going to be terrible. We tell ourselves narratives like, you know, because I picked a dumb college major like philosophy, uh, my whole career path is limited to maybe like barista, teacher, or unemployed, and the first two are sort of long shots at this point. We might think something like, I uh, don't have a good relationship with my kids, so I'm never actually going to successfully model Jesus as a parent. We tell ourselves story like, ever since I left high school and college, my access to friendships has dwindled, my people have drifted off, and I have no choice but to just solitarily drift into loneliness. And if we've been unlucky in love or something like that, we tell ourselves stories that like the significant relationships in our lives are just going to leave us crushed. And, you know, there's a certain logic to these narratives that we spin for ourselves because quite often the past does help us predict the future. But here's the thing. The past predicts the future except when it doesn't. And it doesn't quite often. See, we are not the main characters in our own stories. God is the main character in our story. God is writing a story that we don't know. We are in the middle of a page in our story. We don't know the page that's coming next. We don't know what God is doing with it. And so we don't need to foreclose ourselves to the failures and the worries and the problems that are right in front of us. The God who descended to earth as a human, the God who stepped into the foibles of our existence, the God who experienced our pain, the God who experienced death on the cross so that we could be raised to life like he was, that God is making a masterpiece out of every single one of us. Just because we have run into trouble with our stories does not mean our story is finished because God is not finished writing our stories. The God who ordained the times and seasons for Paul and millions of other witnesses to the gospel is far too wild to be constrained by our predictable stories. The God who brought Paul through mobs and arrests and Roman hunger for power and through shipwrecks is also the God who writes our stories here and now. And whatever you think think God might be doing with your story in the moment, God is probably up to far more than you can imagine. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. God, I pray that you would, that you would give us open-handed hearts, that you would teach us to be submissive to what you have going on in our lives, but that you would also give us the, the openness to the terror and wonder of the unknown, the openness to find out the incredible and amazing things that you are still at work doing, even when we have foreclosed the opportunities in front of us. I pray that you would give us whatever courage and serenity we need to live through the page in our story that you're writing now and to help us turn the page and to guide us through to the end. In Jesus' name, amen. We're at the part of our service where we take communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples in an upper room. And he took the bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body broken for you. Take and eat of it.
Then he took the wine for the cup of the covenant and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink of it. And in remembering the broken body and the shed blood, we recall the central mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Let's stand up together and worship the living God.